to This Thing We Call Art, a podcast offering you these moments, those daydreaming moments that we're all having when we're like not doing anything, quote unquote. And it just asks you to like, just pinch it and take it down for a moment. Just like look at it, like pose it. It's like, how do we pose these moments? How do we make them public just for a little bit, just for a moment? How do we do that and not lose that kind of sincerity to them, you know? Not lose that kind of like earthiness that comes from those like just random thoughts, little spinning outs of things. It's that kind of posing that offers you the kind of perspective on it that otherwise you might not have. I'm your host, Kelly Lloyd, a visual artist, essayist, and educator currently based in the UK. I've been interviewing people in the arts about their livelihoods since 2017, and today you're going to hear a conversation I had on the 8th of May, 2021 with Bella Milroy. Bella Milroy is an artist and writer who lives in her hometown of Chesterfield, Derbyshire. She works responsibly through mediums of sculpture, drawings, photography, writing, and text, and she is also a portrait artist. Her work explores how we touch and make contact with the world around us, with the handheld being of particular significance. She makes work about making work and being disabled, and not being able to make work and being disabled. She is interested in the duality of everyday existence and how things can be both beautiful and painful, both interesting and dull. This process-based practice is fundamental to her as a disabled artist, utilizing and working with the significant limits and demands of living with a chronic illness all mixed in with the detritus of domesticity. I met Bella in 12O, a collective I'm in with Lou McNamara and Eva Duerden, began working with her on her project Mob Shop. Unable to return home for the summer or the holidays and feeling isolated, having just moved to Oxford, Bella sent me vegan flapjacks in a beautifully wrapped package with fresh pressed leaves several times. Our conversation was three hours long, and while I wish I could share it with you in its entirety, today you'll listen to excerpts from it. I'm going to drop you about 30 minutes in. How are things for you in terms of like, you know, the progression of the pandemic and also like how you're managing your time? And Yeah, I think for me, the last 12 months were just uh, such a whirlwind of like increased demand of work in a way that I'd never experienced before so it felt like on all fronts there was like an increase of yeah things d- demanding of me and my work stuff went up astronomically not uh, astronomically for me astronomically <laughs> in terms of my outputs um and it was not good it made me really unwell but it was just one compounding factor of that demand leading to just a disregard of my needs on a kind of mask scale I'd say and yeah I was also on um some really heavy medication as part of my chronic illness that was also making me very unwell but we didn't really know it was doing that so that was a factor me and Jono have this joke of it being like choose your player of like which one is fucking with your mind right now of like is it living through a pandemic is it shielding is it um you know increased work demand is it this medication is it the fact that you're just incredibly unwell a lot of the time and so it was just like we just couldn't see the wood from the trees uh, to understand it all well I mean coming off that medication was a really big part of 
that and going like, oh, okay, now I don't feel this way quite so horribly. <laughs> um, and that was a big, big uh, part of that. But then also just reevaluating my whole kind of daily life kind of structure. Like you say, I think the way we've all examined our routines and how we kind of like operate day to day has been such a focus of all of ours, hasn't it, over the last 12 months? And so, yeah, a big part of that was um, registering with social services and getting set up with them with, to help with a, a PA weekly, which was like life-changing, totally life-changing. <laughs> also a, uh, I'm going to say that really trite word again, astronomically steep learning curve as well. That was that I had anticipated but I think it's just a different animal when you experience it yourself when you go from that kind of informal family care setup to this essentially a stranger who is like in your home especially going from shielding to not having that at all and then having to cope with that and adjust to that and just like you know all the internalized ableism you didn't even know you had uh just kind of spills out into like oh yeah, I don't really ask for what I need very often in a very straightforward way. And I find that really hard and complicated. And so that was a really big thing. And I think I'm still learning with it. Like I've had that for about six months now. And I think I'm definitely getting there and it's easier in some respects, but it is consistently a, a job, like it's a job in itself and you have to manage it. And the way that happens is a big thing it takes up a lot of time and and energy in itself even with how transformative it has been for us like I think I've described in previous bits of writing about um how the last year has been I feel like we were all witnessing just such a a lowering of standards like on mass I feel like everybody has uh in one form or another had to you know um go through that and that for me getting a PA was what felt like a huge raising of the bar <laughs> but now now that I have that it's a new baseline for me which makes me also reevaluate that it was the bar was non-existent you know that I guess that's just a, an illustration of how how bad things had got in a way that it's so difficult because it's yeah I think like so much of coping is just you just going along with it and you yeah, it's not like you're not aware of things and you're not understanding of things, but the coping is is this kind of going along with it. And then when you kind of pause and try and evaluate and do things differently, it's this whole shift of perspective to allow you to see that and be just like, what? Like, <laughs> we were, you were doing this for how long? Like, ah! And so, yeah, so that was a big shift. And then also um, getting registered through Access to Work as well. Uh, which is um, a government-supported scheme for disabled people in employment. Um, uh, It can be used for, like, uh, support workers or for, like, equipment and things like that. It's, like, this secret benefit that nobody tells you about, and it's very, very convoluted, and there's tonnes of gatekeeping to it. I mean, it's something that I've only just been able to qualify for now um, because it's income-based and things like that. So there's, like, tonnes of flaws with it, but that was a yeah really big moment in terms of like yeah work keeping work in its place and not um not uh prioritizing that over everything you know 
that I think that took a huge amount of unlearning to kind of be like oh like I am a priority too and I get to choose when like to do things because yeah I think when you when you live with illness like that it's you get such brief windows to do things like you and I meeting today has taken a really long time to do you know um and so I think work has often felt in which is motivated by lots of good things it's often felt like oh I have a moment where I'm feeling okay I can do this thing and quite often that those moments come when like I say my kind of immediate personal needs are not met in any way but I'm just not interested in them because you know I want to do this fun thing for a bit but then when you kind of put that into the context of more regular more frequent output of things it's just like completely unsustainable like it's so all-encompassing you know because I think um your basic needs are disregarded on a kind of bodily sense because you're not capable of doing those things very often so that's a kind of understood reality and that's an accepted reality and you try and like do things accordingly to work around that so that that's a very familiar kind of framework basically I think I was just applying that to just um, that kind of output and um, there's alongside of that comes not just a disregard but a, a kind of resentment of those kinds of things as well you know like I think sometimes I felt really resentful of just being hungry and things like that and it's just like oh such a slippery slope you know that's and I think like when you add in those to the mix of those kind of compounding factors of medication that uh, is really not good in, for your brain <laughs> and how you think and feel about yourself and, and your relation to the world and things like that so yeah, uh, I think that kind of structural thing has just been so many, so many roller coaster turns of it over the last 12 months. But also, if I think about myself now compared to a year ago, just like night and day in terms of how much better it is. So that feels really great. There's a kind of element of it that feels a bit painful because, like, I found spring quite hard in terms of um, it reminding me a lot of that period but what feels good is that like just knowing how much safer and and um, better I am in that way so yeah it feels really good a couple of things um that I was thinking about when you were um speaking like I feel a need to constantly work out of like a fear all the work will dry up you know which yeah. is a very different thing than what you're talking about but also might yeah. be in some way to like making these moments when, you know, uh, you do feel, you know, really excited about working and you're able to work, like kind of puts even more pressure on it. Absolutely. Um, and also in the arts, like there's no instruction in how to, you know, cause they teach you how to like paint, you know, they teach you how to clean your palette, but they don't teach you how to like take care of yourself no. in the in-between times, which is no. how you have the like you know the ability to then do like you know any of the rest of the shit and so and then of course this is on like a completely different level being someone who like doesn't have you know a chronic illness so I understand that I'm speaking from like a you know very oh, yeah. but also I recognize in some of the things that you say something that I think is very like um really very like fucked up about the art world and also like very ableist about the art world yes and and it's something that I find myself perpetuating with other people in ways that I don't check often enough like mm. I find that like 
there's this emphasis on immediacy, there's this emphasis on speed, there's this emphasis on more, there's always more and you have to do it faster. And you, you know, and it's like all of these things. And once you speed up, then I know that that like creates, you know, even more barriers for anybody, you know? And I think like you're treated in the arts, I feel like as somebody who doesn't have a body, like you don't have to live in a safe and comfortable environment. Like you don't have to uh, live someplace close by your friends and family, you know, or your workplace, which I guess is, you know, one reason why I think I'm doing this podcast is to talk about all the things that are around the work itself to talk Mm. about, like in part, like how we have to care for those things as well, in order to like, be able to do the work that we want to do that we're theoretically like, this is what we do. Completely. And I think, I mean, if you look at the kind of framework of art school in that, they they are, it's, it's totally set up to and designed on that basis of the output being this, you know, tremendous thing that you put out into the world that is incredibly expensive on all fronts, you know. emotionally physically financially um mentally it's this massive thing and it's so difficult when I think about if you take art school for example because I don't think we should eternally put that as like the starter of all of our creative and artistic experiences like that but it does frame so many of them I think these are conversations we've had before if you look at that kind of you know big finale thing of degree show and stuff like that it's like it's so wonderful and amazing and you know I'm sure you have lots of feelings around it at the moment as a student the good things about the intensity are so good you know they're so juicy and vibrant and rich and you know that kind of uh, thinking 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 doing 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 thing is like such an incredible catalyst for some people I don't think it's for everybody I guess for me I think the, the reason why there's a kind of um a conflict in that feeling of being like oh but I love it um <laughs> is that it, it's just one way of doing it and I think it's it's missing the variety you know it's missing that kind of like well what if we did it really slow or what if there was like a slow paced strand to this or just a kind of different an output that isn't so clearly this big firework display thing at the end where we all collapse <laughs> Because I think if really, if you ask, I don't know if a single person that enjoyed their degree show, like I, I, I really, I would struggle to, I mean, maybe now we'd talk to friends and we'd look back and be like, oh yeah, I loved the work I made, but like, it was hell. Like, it, it was so hell. Like, I definitely feel like um, when I went back to uni, because I had a three-year leave of absence, And when I went back to finish my degree, it was, I mean, it was a totally different experience just from the fact that I was a little bit older, I've been out of it more. And because I had been so unable to do it, when it felt like a win just by turning up. So like the moment I was in the studio, it was just like, I've won at life. This is amazing. I get to do this thing. This is just incredible. And so when Degree Show rolled around, it it really, really just felt like another day in the studio for me. And I was I remember being acutely aware of that in terms of how different that was experienced by my peers who had done the kind of standard route of, you know, first to third year straightforwardly, who were, you know, not okay during during that time. They were, you know, it was really, really, really hard because the pressure 
and the kind of um you know the emphasis on this final result this final outcome being this kind of really definitive moment and and I was on a course where they were trying to stress that as a non-definitive thing they were trying to address it as like a kind of more speculative rather than this end point but I mean I think they said a lot of that but maybe didn't do it enough <laughs> in practice uh, you know because it, I mean the, the, the anti-climax of it all is so real you know like and then you finish and then nobody cares you know yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think for me part of the, the not realizing that none of it matters was just totally freeing and made everything far more interesting and exciting because it was like I had a life in a different kind of way and because the way my illness came about meant that I had to completely rebuild my sense of identity and a, and a life for myself which meant that the degree show bit was just one aspect of that and so when it was finished I could then go back and do all the other stuff that I was thinking and doing about which was often really small slow stuff at home and so I think uh, you know that that kind of knowledge of that like oh oh yeah, this is all just really meaningless and that's amazing and that's really great. And I remember knowing that and remember having to just like not say that to people because, you know, I just didn't want to be that like, you know, all-knowing all person who has the wisdom and the understanding of it because, you know, you only know unless you've been through that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it I, that was definitely a really felt thing of like, yeah, this doesn't matter, um, but it wasn't um without feeling or without importance it was just really freeing and liberating when you kind of find that space within art making and creativity sometimes I think I think I am getting better at spotting it before it gets to the bad place but I, I think it's really hard to do that and it's hard to like preempt those moments where you're actually you've already lost you're already way in your overdraft of, of all of that <laughs> and uh yeah I think that's 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 really hard like I say I think I've done a lot in the last six months in particular to kind of try and preempt those moments and like I'd say some of the most successful moments of, of the last six months when I've had to do the same kind of reconfiguring and rescheduling of plans and things like that they've been the first times I've ever done that where I haven't made those decisions when I'm not already on my knees, you know, and they felt amazing. And I don't think I've ever really like appreciated that I could do that. And I could feel like a more of a sense of agency and autonomy over those kinds of decisions that are essentially out of my control because of the nature of my health. Um, but I never really thought I would actually get to those places where I can see that we're on the wrong track here and this is going to go bad <laughs> and, and actually make those decisions with, with that kind of like more better foresight. And I think that's only really happened because a experience for one, and then also just like having that different kind of support that I just didn't have in the same way that more like formalized, like I need help figuring stuff out and putting that in place to, to do that. And yeah, that's felt really, really great to be in that different place to do that. Yeah. And there's, I think there's lots of layers to that, isn't there in terms of like, yeah, wanting to be, be perceived a certain way when you're asking for things that make you quite vulnerable. And, and uh, yeah, I think I too am striving to get to that place as well, where you can just 
say no. I don't know. I feel like this is like systemic change. Like how can we affect systemic change to like <laughs> make it okay for people to say no? Like, I mean, it's totally unsustainable. It's, I think, I think in, if you looked at it from a framework of real community, real care and real kind of um, deep consideration for each other's needs and capacity, it's a totally different story because doing stuff with friends, like that's a different, that's a different request. Like one of the things I've been thinking about, because um, I'm also doing my podcast, but I've only managed to so far do one recording of this program because I have been attempting to, you know, put the dates in and each time it, we, I think we've rescheduled well, like three, four times now with various different people. And it can get really disheartening because, you know, it just feeds the internalized ableism of like this being a problem. You're a problem. You're disrupting things constantly. And fortunately, I'm um, talking to other disabled artists who are most often in the same boat as me as needing to do that all the time. And it's been really interesting. The responses we've had from people when we've had to rearrange is just like, there's, instead of it being a problem, it's more like a reassurance for them to see that, oh, you're doing this too. This is really helpful to know. And that is really deeply reassuring for me. But one of the things I've been thinking is just like, oh, I wonder if like in the next budget request bit, we we could like even put funds aside for that rearranging. Like, I wonder if we could have like, here's the fee for the thing we're going to do. And then we've also got a pot set aside for respecting and acknowledging that you know we value people's time and sometimes we take up people's time in the rearranging of things and like I wonder if we could pay people to rearrange as well do you know like I'd love to be able to do that I talked to some disabled artist friends of mine who incorporate things like recovery time into their practice of like the fee is also a reflection of the way in which they're going to be completely knackered afterwards and need to recover and so I guess it's like thinking in that sense of like okay so there's the thing that requires the output of how we produce and then there's the the buffer and how do we make sure that that buffer is well tended and taken care of and looked after and then allows us to do the other things we want to do and yeah I think that is a really interesting way in which it feeds itself in terms of like, I feel good because I know you're covered and taken care of. You feel good because of that. And then we can all feel a lot better and more comfortable around it, you know? Yeah. Like the, one of the first lines of your um, bio on your about page is like, um, you make work about making work and being disabled and not being able to make work and being disabled. And like, I make work about work <laughs> and, and about this kind of performance of artistic labor my studio practice is just like making people tea and talking to them or like staring at an empty wall. Whereas other people's artistic practices more closely align with maybe in part because they've made it. So this understanding of like, Oh, I got here like eight in the morning and I've like, yeah. you know, and I'm, I've been here for like all three of my meals and yeah. like, you know, and then you see them like, uh, like, carrying plaster molds from like one room to the other and it's like this whole thing that I think when you see it you're like ah yes they're working but mm. then me like drinking tea in my studio it's like what the fuck is Kelly doing you know <laughs> <laughs> how harmful it is to yeah have understandings of like what work looks like yeah so difficult I think it, it definitely reminds me of just like 
you know, there are so many different kind of ways in which we experience that outfit of the artist and what that means to a kind of public display of that. Because for me, the first time I ever called myself an artist was in response to a really classic early years of illness conversation that I would have with people I didn't really know that would ask me like, what do you do? And I would crumple into an anxious blob. And this was still like maybe like a couple of years in. So I was still floating around in this like leave of absence space where I wasn't at uni, but I didn't really know what I was going to do. And um, very much on the kind of a space where we were expecting things to be very different very quickly. And yeah, realizing that I should have just said I'm an artist was like, so incredibly powerful and transformative to what those conversations ended up like because I mean most of the time you say that to people and they're like oh how interesting like and that's not to kind of um make myself into this interesting cool person or whatever but it just takes back the ownership of who I am in those kinds of spaces I get to decide what you think of me and again I think that's something that that took time because Now I'm able to understand my disability and my illness and how that fits into my life, because it's not a case of it being like, oh, I wasn't disabled. I was an artist. You know, I didn't have the vocabulary to be able to talk about my illness in the way that I do now. I have so much more authority over my identity in that respect. And and saying that I was an artist was a really powerful way of doing that. And I think it also influenced this idea of like my time being valuable in a way that I really had to work from the ground up to reconfigure because I got sick in the autumn term of my final year of uni, you know, where everybody is doing the, I've been in the studio for 12 hours a day and I'm working really hard on this, going to not doing that at all. You know, there was this constant kind of feeling of like, you know, when I'm at home watching Homes Under the Hammer, which I stand by today is still one of my favorite shows. Um, So when I was doing that, it was just this overwhelming sense of, you know, you should be somewhere else. This is not where you should be. And to this day, one of the things I still find myself saying internally when when I'm really, really unwell and I'm in bed and I can still say to myself, like, you're exactly where you need to be. And that and then also kind of bolstered by that kind of creative identity was like a really really powerful kind of tool to just give my time the respect that it deserves and my body the respect that it deserved that like this is what I'm doing I'm not doing nothing I'm doing stuff because I'm here and I exist and I think and feel about things and I have relations to the world and people I love and yeah I think being able to put that value on my time in that way was yeah just completely transformative in that respect and so yeah, the artist thing is so complicated because it's got such a capacity for that power and authority and autonomy like that. But then also this, there's this skewed public kind of performance to it as well that can be really tricky. Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting how, you know, because I know there's like so much like who defines themselves as an artist and who they tell they're an artist to who like has so much baggage around it. And so- you know, it was really nice to hear you say, like, it is actually something that you can, like, claim that allows you to claim ownership over your time and, like, claim authority over the way that you organize your life and 
yeah value and what and how your time is you know spent and how it is valued in certain ways and um and I wonder if that's like what is so romantic about an artist for people because that's what people want (laughs) want more of that's what I want more of yeah yeah I think I mean for me you know if you wanted to talk romance I could I could talk romance of that all day long I think you could say the romance of talking about that kind of thing disregards the practical and structural problems with all of it but uh, you know we're not doing that are we there's something about you know creativity is is absolutely romantic like I think for me one of the things I'm always really excited and interested in is like romancing the kind of things I'm thinking about and and feeling around that particularly because so much of my work is interrogating um aspects of my life lived with illness and what that means and so much of that life is kind of drenched in discomfort and difficulty and challenge like that and for me my creative approach to it is always trying to like find moments like that and kind of trying to fall for myself in those ways you know ways that the world says are gross and horrible and uninteresting and unimportant like those are the kinds of things that I want to look at and feel and hold and be able to like fall for you know um and yeah I think it's really undervalued like I think um you know I, I guess maybe one of the things that's springing to mind in terms of how that is undervalued is like uh coolness you know like I don't think it's very cool if you were to turn up and just be like I just love making and thinking about the stuff you know like (laughs) I I think coolness in creative spaces is much more about the performance about how you are styled and again like you know where do you want to start with the structures of that um who gets to look cool etc what bodies get to look cool that kind of thing but if I think about art school like yeah I I think that's a huge hole in that space I mean like I guess it's that inner child kind of thing that's missing in a lot of those uh bits of academia that like you know you do just want to do it because you like it don't you (laughs) and I think we we kind of miss that bit like we're doing it because we really love it don't we don't we don't we love this thing like I, I love it like I think it's like the best thing like talking to you like this is what a treat just to get to do this and like you say like your practice is is this kind of making tea for one another and chatting and and um yeah I mean I think again the focus in those kinds of structures I mean maybe I'm getting too focused on on art school in that respect but I guess that those structures are replicated in so many ways aren't they but like the when you're so heavily focused on the output you know we miss all the kind of ephemeral transitionary kind of moments like this where we're all just dazing off into space and and having brilliant ideas about things that would otherwise just get missed and and forgotten about because we've got to get on with it and do the thing and make the thing to show people you know and something I think we've spoken about over the last 12 months as you've not been able to access those studio spaces it's those bits that are the most pressing in terms of wanting to be there and be with other people and and have those seemingly insignificant moments with one another that really supports that creative output. 
you know, as a, as a black woman, like in majority white spaces, like I've had to find ways to like my body and like my hair and like my skin color in the midst of like a bunch of people not liking it. And, (laughs) and I think, you know, um, and I've had to fall for myself in these ways. Mm. Um, and some of it has to do with, yeah, like having body hair and some of it has to do with like having nose piercings, a bunch of them. And like these ways that I can like adorn myself mm. in particular ways that sometimes like, you know, push up against the things that I should be doing to try to like, you know, like squeeze myself into this person that I can never be. And that I thankfully have grown into understanding that I do not want to be like mm. how boring would life be, right? Like if if everybody just, you know, fit into one mold and falling for yourself and the connection with like aesthetics, but then also like pleasure, you know, I was reading through um, uh, some of your mob shop materials and just this idea that you like, are they called mobility scooters? How are they? What are they? Called? Yeah. Mobility scooter is like the kind of um, little one that's like mainly using two it's got like the front wheel drive that you like use like a little almost like a moped but like got four wheels most of them yeah just the idea that you would like you would fall for it in the way that you fall for like like well-designed beautiful bright products that reflect your personality you know like and these are all words that I know you've used and Mm -hmm. a variety of different outlets but I wanted to talk to you more about Mop Shop, but then I also, yeah, just am interested in how you're tying some of these things together. Yeah, no, they absolutely are from the same kind of place. And I, I think, yeah, tying to so much of what we're saying, like, again, there's such a, it's such a conflict with the idea of coolness as well, in terms of like these spaces, like mobility shops and mobility aids at large are just like, so you know uh void of coolness essentially i mean it, one basic definition of coolness would be kind of embedded in youth culture you know that kind of thing like those spaces don't uh, don't have them so there's kind of part of me that like wants it's like it's desperate for those spaces to be cool to be aspirational to be um you know like places we want to be in and devices that we all want to kind of like touch and hold them and be a part of but within that there are so many difficult parts of how we achieve that like sometimes I think I want those spaces to be completely and wholly just disabled culture and just for us and just the space where they're our things and they belong to us and and we get to use them and we get to feel fucking great using them and look great and and that's for us you know but I think the nature of disability and its vastness and in the way in which anybody can become disabled at any moment and they're not disabled, you know, it's such a fluid experience in in lots of ways, is that I don't know if that's ever ever the the approach we should have with it. I think there's part of me that feels like, well, in order for us to get more comfortable with those places and, and, and have more of a kind of broader aspiration of them, is for us all to be a part of it and all to understand it and Yes, I I don't think those things are mutually exclusive. I don't think they have to be only for us or for only for everybody. You know, I think a non-disabled person could experience them in a really interesting, you know, way that is such a great education. And then also 
they can act as a part of disabled culture as well. But I think, yeah, the falling for yourself bit is so powerful in that way of like, like you say, you know, like just kind of realizing just how draining and exhausting that squeezing yourself in to places that actively work against you and, <laughs> you know, how liberating that can be. I mean, and, and, it, and in that liberation, it is not without its fatigue and its discomfort, is it? But those kind of rituals and those kind of acts are just such a great way of of kind of like you say pushing pushing back against those things that can feel really really close sometimes you know yeah and I don't know about you but for me they've they've always felt quite instinctive in terms of like taking agency and autonomy over these things like because you're met with things that are just so so like gross and like horrible and um you know, the thing itself, say, for example, like if you were to get a, a mobility scooter, like there, and it's interesting, like, um, and this is things I've, I've spoken before about is like when I've, when I've, uh, when I first got my um, mobility scooter, I got it on the basis of I had to just decide not to be embarrassed about it anymore. Um, and I really remember specifically being like, I'm sick of not being able to get out. I'm sick of not going places. I'm just going to not be embarrassed about it. And that was a really big shift and it felt great, but it was like, I think, and again, it took me quite a long time to realize just how weird that is (laughs) to have to have to kind of psych yourself into that place where you're like, I'm going to, I'm going to make this work for me as a way of getting to do the things I want to do. But the process of that is also very complicated. The fact that you, when you kind of go to those kinds of spaces like mobility shops and talk to the people who are working there who are you know my experience of that was with was never with disabled people they may well have been disabled themselves but they weren't forthcoming with that I remember one of them saying things like yeah you know like it is sad that like younger people are using more and more of these things but like it, you know it's good that like it's sad but you know they're cool they're great things and you know good luck with you that kind of thing and like I just remember like looking up at him because I was sat on the thing and just being like yeah like what, what, what is that what are you what are you saying there of like uh it what I'm doing here there's a sadness to it I think what I talked to with lots of lots of my disabled friends is like where are the occupational therapists in that those settings you know where where are the people that have like what's absolute like knowledge and understanding of like bespoke items that are gonna you know and it, and it, it was great but again it's one of those classic experiences of like there's no bar (laughs) because your standards are just non-existent and then you get something like this and you're like oh my god my life has changed like one of the things I always say about getting that scooter was like how you know I got it on a motivation of wanting to get out and wanting to go for walks and, and things like that that would you know I wasn't able to do but it just I never expected it to give me time in a way that it did and I think those are the kinds of things that I'm really interested in in terms of exploring our aids and devices in that like they're designed for very specific things but actually what they give you is just almost kind of infinite in how supportive and transformative they can be like I think applying that kind of creative gaze to it in that way of like yeah how do I fall for it how do I make it mine I think how do I make it mine is something I'm always really really always eternally interested in doing in like there's this thing there's this lump of stuff 
and how do I how do I turn it into this how do I turn it into what I want it to be how do I make it mine is there anything that you thought we would talk about that we haven't talked about do you have any questions for me or is there anything you'd like to say yeah I didn't really have an idea of what we would chat about I think it was just kind of like sharing art practices which I think basically we've done haven't we so that feels really nice and do you I think one of the things that's been interesting for me especially since um since doing access to work because access to work is like just a generic government subsidized thing and it it's more so designed to help people that are in um employment like they have an employer so they're not self-employed so not only am I self-employed but I'm an artist so like just that process was just like so different and they were very like I think they were quite thrown by a lot of the kind of things I was trying to say I needed help with but it was really interesting kind of because they needed to know what they, I basically needed to do a business plan. I needed to tell them where I was going to be in three years time or something like that. And I just never done that before. I'd never formally evaluated my daily output. And I wonder like if you've ever had to do that and what you feel about that. Like, is it something you think about recently? There was some conversation that I was having with someone about like, when you retire like when when you retire I mean like lol (laughs) but like the idea of like not doing it anymore like for me personally in my experience of disability like when we were leaving uni the idea there was all these questions around are you going to get a studio and like are you going to carry on your practice and all these kind of big questions like that and for me it was like but like yeah obviously like a it's what I'm already doing and b like I don't there's no other option for me like I, the, the options of, of of other paid employment are just like non-existent and so but even then it's not like I was there being like paid employment I've got to be an artist I've got to do this thing like <laughs> and again there's lots of support that came into that in terms of how I how feasible that was for me um but yeah, I wonder if that's a question you've ever really like, really like sat with and thought about in that kind of way. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I think like it comes up in conversation with friends. I think sometimes when you're just like hitting a wall, you know, and they've had the same conversation with you over and over and over again. And so they're just like, what is the plan here? Where do you want to be, you know, in, in the future? And I was thinking, like, this but better like yes like not better as in like just the quality you know the quality just kind of consistently goes up a little bit you know like my bed just is always a little softer you know like my house is like just always a little nicer you know my relationships with people are just like a little deeper you know but it's basically the same exact I just want to keep doing this um and by this I mean like having friends, going out for drinks, like, you know, meeting new people, having interesting chats, like getting to do my work, like making some money from a constellation of like artist fees and um, grants and fellowships and lecturing opportunities, like, you know, um, getting to travel to places I've never been to before, like spending time with friends and family and, you know, just kind of that only continued and like consistently better. You know, I think a lot about the things I do not want more than I think about the things I do want, which like in terms of mood board vision, <laughs> I need to like attract the things in my life by 
more about what I do want rather than what I don't want. But I think a lot about how like, I want to continue to be at a level in the variety of things that I do to be in the conversations I want to be in, which mm-hmm. means that I need to keep up a certain kind of exhibition practice. I need to keep up a certain kind of socially engaged practice. I need to keep up a certain kind of writing, mm-hmm. keep up these things so that all of a sudden I'm not put at like the kid's table of any of this shit, you know? Yes. Um, and so I just need to like kind of keep all of those balls in the air at the same level, like at, not at the same level, but at the level that I want them to be for the people I want to talk to and for them to want to talk to me mm. like that I need to do and will continue doing forevermore, you know, which sounds exhausting talking about it, but <laughs> is I think something that I definitely do want based on something that I do not want. Yeah. So I think that's when I think about like my future in terms of planning, like that's it. I really love talking to you. It's, um, and I really like these conversations because I feel like I've talked to you before, you know, like, but somehow in the chit chat, which is lovely. And then the logistics, which is also lovely. Like, I don't get these kind of richer things. Oh no, I had honestly an absolute blast. So, 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 so nice. Yeah. Thank you so much for asking me. Honestly, Kelly, it's lovely. Thank you for doing it. If you're interested in hearing more excerpts from conversations I've had with people in the arts over the years, head over to the website, thisthingwecallart.com. This podcast was funded by the Arts Council England and ArtQuest, Gain Trust, and Tilla Studios. If you would like to help make the next season of this podcast a reality, please consider rating and reviewing this podcast on iTunes, becoming a Patreon member, or donating through the PayPal link on the project's website. The logo was designed by Eva Duerden. The episode artwork was created by Fiona Riley, and the theme song was made by Alessandro Moroni. This podcast was produced by me, your host, Kelly Lloyd. Thanks so much for listening. That's it for season one of This Thing We Call Art.